0: You are listening to The Ortho Show, stories from the world of orthopedics. I'm Ben Young. I'm Mika Nichols. Today we are talking to Dr. Kevin Shea. And Mika, if you could tell us a little bit about what our interview was about with Dr. Kevin Shea.
1: Well, we got... Dr. Shea on the line because he is a member of the rock group, which uh, is nothing to do with music. It stands for Research in Osteochondritis Disicans, and Osteochondritis uh, Dissecans. And one of the founders of that group, he's a wealth of knowledge and very eloquent. Uh, he's a surgeon now up in Stanford where uh, he runs his practice and, and regularly talks on this subject at conferences. And that's what we got him in today to talk about.
0: Great. So, without further ado, let's join the interview with Dr. Kevin Scheer. Thanks for listening,
1: Dr. Kevin Share. Welcome to the Author Show.
2: Uh, it's a pleasure to be here.
1: Kevin, can you start by telling us uh, something about your
2: practice? Uh, sure. And, and there's been a little uh, evolution in my practice. Well, I was in uh, private practice in Boise, Idaho, for 19 years. Part of that private practice was a a merger of a multi-specialty uh, group and a multidisciplinary business organization into a larger health system so i've lived in kind of the private practice world and then working for a health system but still having primarily a private practice um, kind of practice style uh, and practice environment and then uh, about 14 months ago i uh, left a wonderful job with really some wonderful partners and people and administrative staff uh, in boise idaho and took a job at stanford university um, So I think I've had my foot in all three streams, if you will, private practice, working for a nonprofit, non-academic health system, and now working for a nonprofit academic health system. And so it's been interesting to kind of move through those different environments and and learn and take advantages of each of the environment's uh, strengths, if you will, but also maybe learn a little bit about their limitations.
0: Well, congratulations on uh, the appointment at Stanford University. Even even an uneducated heathen like myself has heard of that <laughs> <laughs> location, which is terrific. And I think more importantly, I need to clarify this. Is it Boise or Boise? Is it Boise or Boise? We were talking about that last night. Yeah. Well, the,
2: the, the, uh, the, French, the French says le bois and the S is silent. Uh, le bois means the forest. Uh, but most people in the Boise area use a soft soft S. Uh, if you're not from Boise, they use a hard F or even a Z. So it uh, depends. Uh, if you're French, it might be Lavoie. Uh, if you're uh, a local to Idaho, it's Boise. And uh, if you're outside of there, it's Boise. So well, oh,
1: that, that's, that's that what helps. gave me away last week in Boise. Non-local. That's how they knew I was a non-local. And that's, that's, yeah.
0: that's why Kevin got chased away to Stanford. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, Kevin, obviously today we want to talk quite a lot about, we want to dive in a little bit into um, your experience with, osteochondritis but before before we get into the work that you specifically done in that space could you maybe enlighten us to how many people how many patients on average uh, you would see in your practice a year uh, with osteochondritis and then how many would your average orthopedic surgeon see coming through the door
2: many uh, orthopedic surgeons rarely see these at all they may only see a couple in their whole career depending on the type of patient uh, they see if your if your practice is more focused on pediatrics, you might see more. If you have a sports practice, uh, you'll probably see a few more. But unless you're in peds or sports, you're probably not going to see this very often based on what comes into your clinic. If you have a pediatric sports practice, that's probably the, the natural target for most of these patients because typically they're going to show up under the age of 18 or 20, and many of them show up between 9 and 13 years of age. And so the pediatric sports person with that type of practice focus is probably going to capture most of them.
1: So uh, prior to your involvement with uh, rock, which we're going to talk about in a minute, how did you approach the care of these patients?
2: Yeah, I, I think a couple things. You know, the, the literature does have some recommendations, and in particular the literature showed that a lot of the kids, if you identify them relatively young and you implement uh, treatment programs, in, in many cases non-operative treatment programs with casts or braces or activity modifications, uh, their chance of healing was in the range of 60 to. 65 percent um uh, eric wall uh, dr wall at the Cincinnati Children's has really done some nice work on how non-operative treatments and use of casts or braces or non-operative approaches can help younger kids heal but uh, both dr wall's experience and the collective wisdom of many other the group you know group of about 10 or 15 orthopedic surgeons in the united states who started sharing information with each other um, once the kids got closer to skeletal maturity you know a female after the age of 13 14 or a male after the age of 15 16 17 the chances of them healing with non-operative treatment wasn't very good, and uh, both the literature and I think our clinical experience supported that the relatively young kids with two to four years of growth remaining, or maybe even five or six years of growth remaining, had a pretty good chance, close to two-thirds chance of healing with non-operative treatment, but the older kids did not. And so, what you're left with is for your younger patients, about 60 percent or so would heal with appropriate non-operative treatment programs, but about 30 to 40 percent would not, and so then you would have to come up with appropriate surgical procedures Fortunately, in that younger age group, we had a very successful surgical procedure, and and multiple studies had shown with minimally invasive um, arthroscopic-guided drilling procedures, we had very good healing uh, rates in the range of 80 to 100% in some series. And so that patient group, I think, did pretty well. But we occasionally would find a group, even in those younger patients, who who did not do well, would not heal, had a bad prognosis. And then, of course, those older patients, that 16-year-old male, that 14-and-a-half, 15-year-old female, who were basically skeletal mature or very close to skeletal maturity, they tended not to heal either with non operative treatment or with minimally invasive procedures. And so they would require more significant uh, procedures, such as some type of a formal cartilage reconstruction procedure or some type of fixation and bone grafting, things that uh, either were done with arthroscopic guidance or arthroscopic plus open approaches. And so we kind of found those groups that great prognosis for healing, medium prognosis for healing, might require some more intervention. And then the more advanced patients. Who probably are going to require a more significant procedure to restore the normal function of the articular cartilage of the knee
0: so I'm not sure if this has changed or not, uh, but at that time, you know what was your method of, of diagnosis because it, it's it's usually diagnosed reasonably late, is my understanding? you know people already experience some, some knee pain or stiffness or what have, you, and it's not until they're really getting deep into joint swelling and that kind of thing until it's a, it's a real problem is that is that correct or, or how what was the, the diagnosis method there?
2: in the pediatric, world, the pediatric sports world you see a lot of kids with vague complaints knee pain and maybe anterior knee pain or just sort of vague aches and pain and in many cases we don't get x-rays or in the vast vascular cases, you get the x-rays and the x-rays are unremarkable um and even when you do get x-rays the uh i'll bet at least 20 to 30 percent of the time and maybe even a little higher um the findings on x-ray are pretty subtle and unless you've been looking at lots of x-rays and you're used to seeing an and x-ray i'm surprised how often an x-ray is read um, uh, even by a radiologist, is read as normal. But then when I look at it, I say, well, oh, that, that patient's got an OCD, we need an MRI. So the findings can be a subtle enough that unless you're looking very clearly, and, you know, I see lots of OCD, so of course I'm going to look at a X-ray, and first thing I always look for in a an OCD or in a skeletal mature knee is I was like, okay, is there a subtle OCD here that I don't want to miss? And you may see it on one of four views. It frequently doesn't show up on two or three of the four views. It only shows up on one. And so you have to be very attuned to that, and... It's uh, not uncommon that I'm referred a patient, who has normal x-rays. and I always say, hey, can I see the x-rays? And I'm surprised how often I'm able to see an OCD that wasn't seen. But that's not criticism of other people who are looking at them, but it's just the reality of the fact is it's a hard diagnosis to make on x-rays in many cases. Now, some cases are obvious on the x-ray, and you can see it on two or three of the four images, so it's real easy, but many are more subtle. The the, The best test we have is MRI, and if MRIs were readily available and inexpensive, uh, like X-rays, comparatively, you know, we're talking hundred or two hundred dollars versus thousands of dollars. Um, MRI is a very good test and, and really does not miss OCD, and so that's one of the challenges is that it can be missed on clinical exam. Number one, the clinical exam is frequently very vague; the clinical symptoms may be as vague as some subtle anterior knee pain, no swelling, no mechanical symptoms, no limp, um, and so the the diagnostic challenge can can be the make the diagnosis on X-ray, which can be uh, limited, and then. Uh, going on x ray or going from X-rays to MRIs, which are more costly and require, you know, a much more committed uh, evaluation process than, than a simple kind of X-ray or clinical exam.
1: So you mentioned a few minutes ago about a group of orthopedic surgeons who started sharing information uh, on their experiences with these types of patients, and, and I'm guessing uh, that was the, the the start of ROC. Can you take us through that?
2: Yeah, it was kind of interesting. It's just a, a fortuitous uh, a series of events occurred. Um, myself and a gentleman named Eric Wall, and Ted Ganley, and then uh, we involved Dr. Min Coker. We uh, started having conversations about we were seeing more of this in our practice, and we were a little concerned about we didn't have the best literature to guide us. And since it was relatively uncommon condition, it was hard for any one center to see 200, 300 patients a year to start developing hey, what's the best treatment protocol? What's the best way to treat these patients? And so we all thought early on that if we could somehow share data, uh, that would help us, um, I think, uh, more quickly acquire knowledge and quickly determine what were the best treatment options. And I think most importantly, when you're treating patients and families, we know that some of these go on to heal very well, but some don't. We wanted to be able to counsel families, uh, both the patients and their, their parents, early on and say, hey, we had data showing that your child at this age with this type of lesion on X-ray MRI has a 92% chance of healing without surgery or has a 12% chance of healing without surgery. And, and that's the type of um, granular information that we didn't have. So we started talking about how do we start sharing information. So that led to a discussion about, well, maybe we should form this OCD study group. And we I have this picture of, uh, of us sitting in a cafeteria in San Francisco in 2009 where Basically, drawing on a napkin about, hey, what would this group look like? And and that was essentially the first me- informal meeting of the Rock Group. We subsequently uh, got a name. Rick Wright uh, helped us with a really good acronym: Re- uh, Research Rostrocondratis Dissecans of the Knee, or the Rock Group, which I think personally is one of the, the more catchy, if not the most uh, cool, if you will, um, um, uh, acronym for a multi-center study group. The Rock Group was formed informally in a, on a napkin in uh, San Francisco in 2009 in Capteria cafeteria with uh, Kevin Shea, Ted Ganley, Eric Wall, and Min Coker, and then. Quickly, other people got involved. Simultaneously, the other event is that Hank Chambers, who I did my fellowship with, who also taught me a lot about OCD, uh, and Hank saw a fair amount of OCD in San Diego over his 25, 30 years in practice there. Hank was asked to uh, work with the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons to develop a cl- evidence-based clinical practice guideline for the treatment of osteochondritis II, and he asked me to um, co-share that guideline process uh, with him. And, and at that time, I just gotten involved with the Academy's Evidence-Based Quality Value Committee teams, which oversaw and developed the guideline process. So kind of, I got involved with the Academy. Hank asked me to get involved with the guideline on OCD of the knee. And three other surgeons and myself sat down and said, hey, we need to form a study group to figure this out. And so those three things all kind of came together and and sort of complemented the um, the foundation of the OCD study group or the ROC group. And then the guideline came out, I believe the guideline was published in 2011. And so the guideline was an exhaustive extensive review of the literature. Uh, It went through a series of clinical questions as to how we should follow patients with OCD through the continuum of care from how do they present to your clinic, how do we evaluate them clinically, how do we evaluate them with imaging, and if we need to do surgery or non-surgical treatment, what's the best non-surgical treatment? Is it bracing, is it casting? what's the best surgical treatment? Is it surgical procedure A versus surgical procedure B? What's the ideal post-operative therapy uh, protocol to get patients better? And so the, all those things sort of came together and and, and there you have it. And, and they really, my, my work with the Academy, my work on the uh, guideline with Dr. Chambers and then working with you know, uh, Ted Ganley, Eric Wall, and Min Coker on the formation of the study group were sort of the, the key things that all came together simultaneously and got us off the ground.
0: But But Kevin, there isn't, you know, you, you state at the beginning. There's not a lot of these patients out there, or, or at least, you know, there may be, but they're they're you know they're spread out, right? Not everybody's seeing them. So, how on earth have you guys managed to overcome that challenge? I mean, what what how have you formed the group, and how does the group function in order to be able to get enough data to get your tangible outcomes to give to give those guidelines? Yeah,
2: it's a great question, um, and I think anytime you're dealing with an uncommon condition, you have to you have to figure that out. And fortunately, while OCD is not as common as ACL uh, in kids, it's certainly not as rare as some unusual tumors or other conditions. So I would call it a a moderately rare condition, or or, uh, it's not as frequent as some, but it's not as incredibly rare as others. So, But when we were first looking at data on our centers, when we first started talking to groups, we wanted to make sure a couple things existed if you were going to become one of our partner centers. One, you had to see at least... um, 20 new patients a year of OCD so we actually had centers say hey look at your records make sure you're seeing at least 20 new patients a year number one number two you have a research coordinator who can help you support your involvement uh, with a multi-center study group like rock uh, and three you're you're really committed to coming to your annual meetings and you're really committed to doing follow-up on these patients and so we we sort of set the bar at 20 new patients a year and there were some centers that only saw five patients a year or seven or ten or twelve but we had set an expectation of you need to see at least 20 new patients a year in your practice uh, to qualify, um, and what we found is a lot of our centers saw between twenty and forty patients a year but if you, let's say it, let's say we had an average of twenty patients a year for twenty centers we got twenty centers that's four hundred new patients a year. We felt that if we could see four hundred to five hundred new patients a year and collect good data on them, good data going forward with prospective outcome and good information, uh, we would be able to slowly make um, uh, or slowly uh, be able to create a prospective cohort that had enough enough information that we would be able to start to answer more clinical outcome questions on this condition. What we found is that some of our centers, as they became more focused on OCD, the word sort of spread. Um, And so these centers, many of them, which initially were seen 20 a year, we're now seeing 35 to 40, 45 to 50. And so their volume went up as as communities became aware that these centers were focused on OCD.
1: And uh, are you any closer to getting answers to your questions that you're, you're researching?
2: Uh, there are some questions that we're probably starting to answer a little bit. Now, uh, things that we've done so far is whenever you share information across centers, it, you, you have to make sure that um, how you communicate and how you share information and that information is consistent. For example, if I look at an OCD on an x-ray, I, I have to make sure that the way I classify that is similar to the way Ted Ganley classifies it in Philadelphia or Eric Wall does that in Cincinnati or Hank Chambers uh, does that in San Diego or Min does it in Boston. And so we spent a lot of time early on making sure that we could, we would have relatively reliable x-ray classification systems in which we described the stages of the condition. The second thing we worked on, which was critically important, uh, we all think that the, the definitive standard in many ways of an OCD lesion in terms of classification is uh, arthroscopic evaluation. You know, what you see in the arthroscope is not always what you expect based on what you see in the x-ray and the MRI. And so the actual physical evaluation, the probing, the physical review, the camera, in the joint. Uh, And we spent a lot of time early on making sure that we had a reliable classification system and spent about two and a half, three years developing and um, uh, validating that we had a reliable classification system, which has been published. So we now have standards both for x-ray and, most importantly, for um, arthroscopy evaluation. The third hill that we're climbing and the biggest hill and the steepest hill and the longest hill is the MRI classification. MRI is surprisingly complex, partly because the MRI is such a powerful tool and collects so many pieces of information, but we have to make sure that those pieces of information can be uh, reliably seen and recorded and classified and shared between centers. So we're still working on finishing the MRI reliability thing, and I think we're probably 12 months away or so, maybe 15 months away from finishing our work on the MRI reliability. While we're doing uh, completing the MRI, um, are, we're still collecting information on patients because we can, we can do some things simultaneously. We can sort of walk and chew gum. There are some things you have to do in series where you have to do step A, then step B, then step C. You, you can't change the order. But there are also things where you can do step A, step B, step C, step, step D simultaneously. And we felt that in development of the classification systems and developing a prospective cohort, uh, we could do at least some of those things simultaneously. So those things have all been running in parallel to some degree. Um, uh, because we felt it was reasonable to do so.
0: Where are you going next? I mean, what's the focus now and in the future? And therefore, how can people either learn more or get involved?
2: Yeah, so I, I think a couple of things. You know, the the clinical practice guideline, which came out in 2011, even though we didn't have a lot of evidence to give clear recommendations about uh, how you should treat OCD, we did outline with with a, with a group of national experts, we did outline the important clinical research questions to go forward and so much of what the rock group has done is they they've used that uh, template of questions to move forward and to try to start answering those questions so for example it was very important in the guide or in the guideline that we needed a reliable classification system for arthroscopy x-ray and mri so the rock group has taken those things on two of those things are done a third is in the process of being completed Um, i think the the other thing that's going to be very important and, and the the reason the group really came together is that as I mentioned earlier, when I see patients who have this condition, one of the challenges, and I'll just give you a typical scenario, 13-year-old soccer player, she has been playing soccer since she was five. She loves playing soccer, and now her knee is occasionally swelling. Mom and dad notice a little nymph, and she's had pain in her knee, and she comes into my clinic, and she gets the diagnosis of OCD. And she has a lesion that I want to be able to look at the lesion, examine the patient, review the extra MRI, and I want to be able to tell the family, you have with non-operative treatment over the next six months with an unloader brace or a cast or whatever we decide, your prognosis for healing is 72% or 98% or 12%. So the family and the patient can then make a decision such as, oh, I've got a 94% chance of healing with an unloader brace. Great. I'm going to choose that. Or if it says I've got a 22% chance or a 12% chance of healing with an unloader brace or a cast or non-operative treatment, they might say I'm going to go towards surgery. So that's one scenario. The next scenario is if we do go towards surgery, there's several different surgical options. What is the best surgical treatment? Is it a transarticular drilling? Is it a retroarticular drilling? Um, that's one of the questions the OCD group is studying. Ben Hayworth, Boston Children's, was very successful in getting this grant. He has almost completed a almost, I guess we're almost in our fourth year of collecting data comparing transarticular to retroarticular drilling. We don't know yet which one's going to be the best treatment recommendation, but at some stage, I think in the next 18, 24 months, we'll be able to give patients a recommendation that the, this prospective uh, research trial has shown that this drilling procedure is better than this drilling procedure and we'll build a council families based on that let's say the family has a more advanced lesion it's a 16 year old female who's skeletally mature and her chance of healing with less invasive or non-operative treatment is is less than five percent we can then tell the family well these are the three surgical options you have to restore your cartilage treatment option a has this chance of success treatment option b has this chance of success can see has this chance of success and we can talk about the relative success rates but also the relative risk rates because some surgeons that may have a higher success rate may have a more complicated higher complication rate and so we want to be able to provide that type of information so when patients and families come to us we can really engage in what we call really um we, we've talked about patient-centered communication and much of our practice should be patient-centered because that's very important we really center our treatment around patient decisions what they want but i really think we, what we want not just patient-centered we want what I call relationship-centered We develop a relationship with the patients, and we work together to share information with them about what is the best treatment option for you based on your personal preferences, personal concerns, um, personal personal, personal foci. Um, And this relation-based care pathway, I think, is very important. And the more information we have on counseling patients about what we can expect with certain treatment options, the better, the more rich, the more complete that relationship Becomes because we have better information to guide patients and families as they make their decisions about what they think is best for their own, their own uh, particular circumstances.
0: That's a terrific lesson. That's broader than OCD and broader than the rock. That's a great lesson in all you know in all care approaches.
2: Absolutely. In fact, all healthcare. You know, I, I, one of the advantages of me working with the the Academy committees on evidence based quality and value, and also doing all the work on, on wellness and communication with patients, is that. These practices about patient-centered communication and relationship-centered communication um, I think are really going to help us make better decisions with patients because increasingly, in, in many cases, I think it doesn't come down to what the treatment option is. What it comes down to is what option is best for that patient and family and how do we help them own that decision. And when we have good information we can share with them and we are good communicators, we're good listeners, and we're good transmitters of information, but we also listen to our patients. That's ultimately what's going to get better outcomes, because I think many things in healthcare that will lead to better outcomes, it's not revolution in technique or procedures. It's actually better communication skills and defining expectations and having patients and their families really own the outcomes and really feel that they were a vested member in these outcomes. They really want it. We, we, we want them to be involved, because I think invested patients uh, do better. They understand what to expect. Uh, they're more committed to getting better, and they understand the role they play in that.
1: Yeah, this is this seems to be the the current paradigm that that is 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 growing now in healthcare, and I, I certainly hope it continues to grow. Um, but it, so, for clinicians out there who might be listening to this, who want to find out more about your organisation, what you're doing, your results, where can they go?
2: Yeah, a, a couple places. Um, there is a the ROC OCD Study Group has a, a site. It's called meocd.org and it highlights all the centers. I I believe we have about 23 centers uh, right now. There may be a couple more because we've had a couple international partners. We've got someone in Singapore, someone in France, uh, someone in Germany. Um, So we we have maybe expanded a little bit, but I think we're in the low 20s right now. There are about 50-some total members, and the the membership is not just surgeons. We have a number of researchers, PhD researchers, uh, including some veterinarian researchers at the University of Minnesota and in Scandinavia. We have a Dr. Greg Meyer who's a PhD researcher. We also have a number of physical therapists and musculoskeletal radiologists because if you guys haven't figured this out yet in healthcare, healthcare is a team sport and OCD is not about uh, orthopedic surgeons. Yes, we play a major role in treatment decision making, but we do this in partnership with physical therapists, athletic trainers, uh, musculoskeletal radiologists, uh, non-operative physicians. and The research partnerships with the veterinarian colleagues, um, they have been studying OCD for 20, 30 years and longer, and so we have learned as much from the Veterinary world uh, as any other group and increasingly there's a lot of two-way exchange between physicians who take care of human patients and the veterinarians who take care of animal patients as we share information and get better
1: yeah i was interested to, when i was looking into you guys to to read that the rates of ocd in horses is like through the roof or something it's huge isn't it
2: uh yes it, and it's interesting the uh, horses and domesticated pigs um, there are some domestic pig species that, at one year, ninety percent of them have evidence on a CT scan of OCD in their Ninety percent. Ninety percent.
1: Now, many of them go on
2: to, many of them go on to heal, but a lot of them don't. And in the in the pig industry, in terms of uh, raising animals, a lame pig is not as valuable. It doesn't gain weight as much. It limps, and so it has a big impact on the value of, of that uh, population. If you're raising pigs for uh, for a food source, and so it does matter for them as well. And what's been interesting is by working with veterinarians who look at horses and pigs in which OCD is a very significant problem, leads to lame horses or lame pigs, or we also look at goats. Uh, OCD is unheard of. In fact, to my knowledge, it's never been published a case report of OCD in goats. And one of the things we've started to learn is the blood supply about the knee in goats is different than the blood supply about the knee in pigs. And the blood supply in pigs and humans is very similar about the knee and it's very different from goats. And we increasingly are starting to think that based on pig blood supply anatomy and human knee blood supply anatomy. We're beginning to think more and more that many of the cases of OCD may be related to a fundamental vascular architecture issue and in areas in which adequate blood supply fails or does not exist, and that predisposes both humans and pigs to developing OCD in typical locations.
0: I see the beginnings of, a, of another whole podcast. I was just going to guess. Uh, yeah. Actually, maybe yeah. a whole different show altogether. Uh-huh. That's great. So there you have it. The People need to visit knee ocd.org there's patient education provider education uh, the locations of the current rock stuff and if you're an orthopedic surgeon out there and you want to become a rock group member this might be your only <laughs> way i hate to tell you <laughs> so go ahead and visit me ocd.org kevin thank you so much I, you know we really appreciate you uh, giving the time here uh, boy there's a lot of information there um but uh, you know thanks for joining and us.
2: good
1: luck with uh, con- your continuing work
2: well and uh guys uh, we're we're very excited to be part of this work and come back to us in in 3 or 4 years and maybe we'll have a really meaningful update uh, and some more information about what's next uh, the last thing i might just throw out there is that the one thing that uh, we're just starting to look at is the field of biologics you know we approach a lot of things mechanically and surgically but the field of biologics, especially if blood supply is one of the fundamental problems that we have to address, the ability to take uh, biologic approaches to solve blood supply problems and get bone and cars to heal uh, is really quite remarkable. So a lot of new things coming forward. So keep your keep your ears open. Some some new changes, new uh, information, new research will be coming out in the future.
1: Yeah, exciting times. And we'll definitely take you up in that offer and, and come back to you in a few years.
0: We like to finish up just with a couple of very random questions. You can answer or not answer your choice. Um if uh, if I were to ask you, favorite orthopedic device, instrument, or implant all-time, Kevin Shea, what would it be?
2: Oh, uh, gosh.
0: Oh, um, you're on the spot. A lot of pressure on this one.
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm on the spot. Um, gosh, it, it, there are so many different devices I use um, that have revolutionized the way I take care of patients. Um, and let me just start with a little segue because i'm going to move away from this i'm going to go one direction and i'm going to pull pull another direction i used to be a spine surgeon uh early on in my career i did a lot of a little bit of everything in pediatric orthopedics including sports but also a lot of spine surgery and i will say that pedicle screws uh, which were existed before i started my training but weren't as widely used until i got well into my training had a revolutionary impact on spine surgery but also were used inappropriately in some cases but it was a wonderful tool and really changed the way we managed uh, spine surgery but Most of my world now is sports, and um, there are so many wonderful devices now that allow me to get remarkable quality of fixation through arthroscopic approaches, Um, (laughs) and there's just so many, but there's uh, uh, if I have to name one, maybe it's just because it's a surgery, I I do a lot, but it's hard to pick one, but I I think some of the um, devices that, that allow us to fix ACLs to the bone arthroscopically. With excellent uh, security, excellent biomechanic failure characteristics, and minimally invasive approaches, I think has really revolutionized the way we do shoulder and knee and shoulder surgery. Um, So is that? Is that? I I sort of said a fixation device without telling you any exact (laughs) one. But I like to.
0: uh, Yeah, that's good enough. I like to force you all the way to to tell me uh, uh, the one. You know, what's the one you reach for? Just because we find it interesting and fun. But you, if you if you don't want to name a a a company, that's fine. But are you talking about? Uh, like a a button loop combo type thing
2: yeah i I would say uh, button loop combos and also some of the soft tissue anchors because i I sometimes use those interchangeably but those allow me to get remarkably good fixation with soft tissue to bone and i would say just any any of the categories of devices allow us to get very good soft tissue fixation of bone whether it's for an acl or rotator cuff or whatever Uh, those devices have revolutionized the way we do surgery and allow us to and for example, um, you know, I, I used to use tourniquets for a lot of surgeries I do. I almost never use tourniquets now. Um, the swelling that I have after my knee surgeries now, um, because the devices are so good, I can do the surgeries in 30 to 50% less time. And so the amount of swelling that I have after surgery is less. And so when the patient goes to the therapist two days later, I've gotten comments from therapists who say, How do you have so little swelling after your ACL reconstruction, your meniscus repair? And my response to them is, Well, we try to be very efficient in the OR. And a big part of that efficiency is the quality of devices that exist now that allow me to get excellent soft tissue fixation with relatively short periods of time and um, relatively good biomechanical features. Those devices have just changed the way we do surgery. It's less trauma for patients, it's less OR time, it's less fluid, it's less swelling. And so the patient's rehab is easier, the physical therapist's job is easier. And I think all of these revolutions we have in minimally invasive arthroscopically uh, developed devices to fix soft tissues has just revolutionized what we do.
0: Very good, good answer. I'm going to hit you uh, I think with uh, w- one one final question maybe which is where do you see the biggest revolution coming in uh, sports medicine in the future? In terms of it could be devices, it could be techniques. W- what's the next big step in your opinion that you see coming down the pipe?
2: Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd probably say all of the above. Um, I think uh, a technique and devices go hand in hand, and it's, it's, it's in many ways you can't really separate those because they develop simultaneously, and they frequently reinforce each other. A better device with improved techniques means the device is that much better and means the technique is that much better. Um, I do think, as I mentioned at the end there, that there, I know people talk a lot about biologics, and there has been an awful lot of hype without a lot of data. Um, but I do think we are on the verge of some real biological breakthroughs that are, are going to complement techniques and are going to complement devices. You need all of those. You need techniques, techniques that are based on good, sound biomechanical principles. You need biologics that really understand the biological underpinnings of all these conditions and what we can do to alter the microbiological environment and the growth factor environment to really promote healing. And then, of course, you need very adept, uh, consistent, reproducible surgical techniques, and we have to continue to pass those techniques on to every new generation, who hopefully continues to make each technique better. So I think they're all the same. Um, the other thing I, w- I would say, and I know this is maybe a little bit of a off-target what you asked, um, but I perhaps alluded to it earlier, and I'd like to call out a guy named David Ring. David Ring feels um, that some of the biggest revolutions we are going to see in healthcare are not technical, device, biologic. He thinks it's going to be better communication with our patients. And I truly believe that the more we communicate with our patients and families, and the more they understand what we're doing, and the more they buy in and share the decision-making process, and the more they own the whole process of musculoskeletal health and rehab, uh, and, and all of those things that we need to define a successful outcome, I think that's where the real revolution is going to come as well, is that we get better outcomes because we communicate better with our patients, and they really feel they are owning and managing the decisions, and they've got a real stake in that whole process. And I think the, the better communication techniques that we develop as we learn more, how can we be culturally sensitive, how can we be sensitive to different genders, different cultures, different people, how can we communicate better to help people really believe in what they're doing and really own the outcomes, I think we're going to see as many miraculous improvements by better communication and better uh, interactions with patients and their, um, their providers, if you will, and their physicians. I think those are going to lead to remarkable advancements as well.
0: Well here here Kevin once again thank you so much really appreciate your time thanks for uh, playing my silly game here at the end with the bonus <laughs> questions and uh, hopefully one of these days I get to meet you in person and shake your hand but uh, thanks from me any final words Mika
1: No I, I love the fact that you're talking about communication and its importance it's uh, certainly been a large part of what what I used to consider when when I was uh, working with patients and um, yeah I hope that message is strongly getting out there to everyone but Thanks a lot for joining us.
2: Great. Well, it's a pleasure. I'm, I'm honoured to, to, to listen to your questions and, and stumble through the answers as best I can. Thank you very much.